0: My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job And decided to do just that in each episode I speak with those people their loved ones supporters and lawyers to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades despite the evidence and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved this week I'm telling the story of Ralph Trent Stokes March 11th 1982 3 people were murdered during a robbery of a famous restaurant in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Smoke and Joe's Corner. Smoke and Joe 19-year-old Ralph Trent Stokes used to work there in the kitchen. After one survivor said the victim might have recognized Ralph's voice, Ralph was arrested and charged with the murders. At trial, after only 45 minutes of deliberation, Ralph Stokes was convicted of 3 counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death one of the youngest in the state of Pennsylvania. But in 2004, Ralph discovered the prosecutors had withheld exculpatory evidence in his case, and he may be one of many burned by the system in Philadelphia. He
1: also fired 31 people to clean up the DA's office.
0: And since then, more has come out about the lead prosecutor in Ralph's case, a man named Roger King.
2: Roger King was a fixture, big time trying some of the city's biggest cases before he retired in 2008.
0: King has had multiple convictions overturned because of his alleged misconduct and corruption. In just 19 months, nine people, some serving life sentences, have been exonerated. And so after almost 40 years on death row, why is Ralph still in prison? And who did kill three people in Smoke and Joe's? We'll get to that after this. This case came to me from Lisa Spees. I've known Lisa for about a year through my work on wrongful convictions. She's an advocate for many of the cases you've heard, like JJ and David Thorne. And there wasn't much on Ralph Online, so it took me a minute to agree to Lisa to take Ralph's case similar to my hesitation with Tracy Zorn's. But I trust Lisa, so I agreed to look.
3: You know, Ralph is one of the kindest people I think I've ever dealt with, spoken to. Like, when he calls me, it's not about what I can do for him. It's about what I'm doing. When my dog died, uh, I had to put my dog down in May. He was so... It was unbelievable to me. Just the empathy that he had and... Didn't want to talk about his case, didn't want to talk about what I, what my thoughts were, what I was doing for him. How are you doing?
0: You know? Ralph has been on death row in Pennsylvania since he was 19. He's now almost 60. And Ralph, like Tracy Zorns, has yet to tell his story in his own words to a national audience.
3: Hey, how are you? Hey,
0: how you doing? I'm okay. Did you get my email?
2: Yes, I just got it. I like that, how you did that with the, um, uh, uh putting the questions in there so I could, I could think, uh, go back, want to think about it. Uh, some of the stuff I didn't, I haven't thought about in years. I'm very so deep. Yeah. Just trying to take
0: one day at a time. It's sometimes tough to get in touch with Ralph. I'm not on his phone list yet, so we talked through a three-way call with his cousin Rodney. So the audio is sometimes not great. And he's also been on and off of lockdown because of COVID. So we haven't talked as much as I'd like to between that and coordinating my and Rodney's schedules. But I'm glad I looked at this case because there are some incredibly disturbing things. Particularly that it was prosecuted by Roger King. King served as prosecutor for more than 30 years, beginning in 1973 and ending with his retirement in 2008. He was known as being incredibly aggressive, but several of his convictions have since been overturned because of misconduct. In fact, the Death Penalty Information Center wrote when King died in 2016 that he pursued the death penalty against at least seven men who may have been innocent. Ralph Trent Stokes was born in February 1963 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was the oldest of six kids. His mom stayed home raising the kids, and his dad was a longshoreman on the docks. Ralph grew up in West Philadelphia, in Wynwood, a historically working-class neighborhood. It's also where Will Smith is from in Real Life and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In
2: West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is
0: where I said In the 1960s, West Philadelphia became a majority black population and crime began to rise in this neighborhood and all around Philadelphia after white flight to the suburbs. By 1990, Philadelphia had one of the highest crime rates in the city's history and the crack epidemic was rampant. West Philadelphia became nationally known during this time in the late 70s and 80s, for violent clashes between the police and a radical black group called MOVE. Here's a clip from a Vice
4: documentary on it. There is a small war underway on a street in Philadelphia tonight. There was gunshots, thousands of rounds of bullets from the police.
0: Police moved in with tear gas and water cannon. In 1985, just two years after Ralph was convicted, the police firebombed the group's headquarters, killing 11 people just three miles from where Ralph grew up.
4: State police helicopter drops it. There is the explosion.
0: But Ralph avoided all of this. He was a good kid. He had no record and grew up really close with his family, particularly his cousins. I mentioned Rodney. They all lived in Philadelphia and would hang out and play together, especially at their grandparents' house. Ralph's cousin Rodney told me he was a happy kid and was always trying to make everyone else happy. Ralph also told me that he loved animals.
2: But I always, always,
1: uh, I love animals and wanted to do something in that area.
0: Like maybe be a vet or a zookeeper.
1: I would love to do it. I would love to get a job in that, working in the zoo. Plus, you see on TV now, animals. with an Animal Planet, and all they showing the mega zoos and all that stuff. I would love to. I would love to get a job, in that, but something with animals at a pet store, uh, when I was younger, uh, worked in a horse stable. I had dogs. I had uh,
2: turtles, fish, steak.
0: But Ralph didn't finish high school. He dropped out in tenth grade, and instead, he went right to work.
2: I was, I was trying to, you know, like many
1: of us, just trying to find a, you know, the best job you could, make the most money. Uh, working in kitchens at short order club.
0: And working as a short order cook is how he got named a suspect in this triple murder. March 11th, 1982 started as a normal day at Smoke and Joe's Corner in West Philadelphia. Smoke and Joe's was owned by heavyweight boxing champion Joe Frazier, nicknamed Smoke and Joe. He was the first boxer to beat Muhammad Ali.
2: Smoke and Joe Frazier! With his devastating left hook, Joe Frazier was one of the greatest heavyweight boxers in history.
4: Philadelphia native, smoking Joe Frazier! Joe Frazier!
0: A Philadelphia Inquirer article from when the restaurant opened describes a bustling scene with a charismatic owner, Smoking Joe. When he walked in, patrons would yell out to him to have them sign their menus and everyone would clamor to talk to him. But on March 11th, Joe had not arrived at the restaurant yet. His new establishment wasn't open. Sometime between 12 and 1 p.m., the manager, Mary Figueroa, and three employees were preparing for the day when two masked gunmen walked in. According to the only two survivors, the armed men herded them into a walk-in freezer in the kitchen. They then proceeded to rob the restaurant of anywhere from $3,000 to $4,000. The numbers actually vary depending on which report you're reading. The manager, Mary, mentioned to the other employees that she thought she might recognize the voice of one of the suspects as a former employee. Then the robbers returned to the freezer, and one opened fire, killing Mary and Eugene Jefferson, a dishwasher, at the restaurant. The two other employees were spared when allegedly the gun malfunctioned or ran out of ammo, but not before the robbers killed the third victim, Peter Santangelo, a mailman who happened to walk in the restaurant to deliver mail during the robbery and was gunned down trying to flee out of a locked door. The survivors described the gunman as a black male 57259. The victim, 35-year-old Eugene Jefferson, was described by his mother as a beautiful person. 23-year-old Peter Sant'Angelo was a straight-A student who was working on his master's degree in criminal justice. Mary Louise Figueroa, 38, was a mother of three. And it was her husband, George, the co-manager of Smoke and Joe's, who discovered the scene that afternoon. Nineteen-year-old Ralph Stokes lived down the street from Smoke and Joe's Corner, and actually used to work at Smoke and Joe's as a short-order cook.
2: How long did I work there? I can't even remember. I think it might have been two years, or it might be a little long. I think uh, might be might be two and a half years. I I'm not even for sure.
3: Oh wow! So you worked there for a bit?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So did you know you knew the victims? Did you know Mary?
2: Yes, yes.
0: Ralph's parents testified that he was home with them from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., but it was Ralph that Mary Figueroa allegedly thought she recognized as one of the robbers. Right before she died, she said she thought it was Trent's voice. This is Ralph's middle name and nickname but she never thought he would do anything like this. One of the survivors told this to the police, and that's how Ralph Trent Stokes got named as a suspect. He was eventually picked up and arrested three days later and charged with the murder. Over a week later, an accomplice was also arrested, Donald Jackson. Now, I want to stop for a minute. At this point in the story, I was trying to figure out how Jackson's name got brought up in the first place, since he was integral to the case against Ralph. But what I discovered was that many details on exactly what happened after the murders are unclear, one of the reasons being corruption in Philadelphia law enforcement, which we'll get to in a bit. Many of the original police reports and notes have been changed crossed out and written over. Things like the victim, Mary Figueroa, saying the voice sounded like Trent, was crossed out and says, was Trent. From what I can tell, it was Donald Jackson's girlfriend, Twinkles, who told police a day after the murder that Jackson was involved. At some point shortly after, Jackson fled the state, dressed as a woman, to allegedly hide from the police before his arrest. The trial against Ralph started on July 7, 1983. As I mentioned earlier, prosecutor Roger King was aggressive in pursuing the death penalty, and this case was no exception. He was going for capital murder, and Jackson was the state's star witness. He provided an 11-page statement against Ralph for a plea deal to remove the death penalty against himself. Now, if you live in Philadelphia or know anything about Philadelphia in the 80s and 90s, you are probably familiar with the name Roger King. King was a big fixture in Philadelphia law enforcement for 35 years, beginning when he was hired in 1973. He stood out. For starters, he was black, which wasn't typical for prosecutors in the 70s. A recent study actually found that today, 95% of all prosecutors are white. So in the 70s, the number was much smaller. Roger King was also seen as a larger-than-life character. And he was physically large, that too, he was about 6'2". But more than that, he'd made a name for himself in the courtroom with his grandiose tactics. Here's King in the recent Netflix documentary, The Innocence Files.
4: You should look at him not in sorrow, but in scorn, and that scorn being, and you should stand up and look at him, and look at him for the despicable human being that he is, the mad dog that he is, and say, for what you did, why you did it, how you did it, for what you did, you should die. King
0: made a name for himself not only with his performances, but by winning 16 death penalty convictions, more than any other prosecutor in Pennsylvania history at the time of his retirement in 2008. It wasn't until his career was nearing its end that King started becoming as well-known for misconduct and corruption as he'd been for death penalty convictions.
3: I don't know of a more consistently corrupt prosecutor that I've read about, kind of dealt with, you know, in terms of like being involved in a case that they were in. I mean, it's case after case after case. And he had this M.O., that he just made shit up.
0: This is Lisa Spees, who I mentioned earlier. She's a social justice advocate and the director of Virginians for Justice. We
3: focus primarily on wrongful conviction, excessive sentencing, and then we also push for criminal justice reform in Virginia. Virginia is a state that doesn't even have parole.
0: Lisa started an advocacy about five years ago when she moved to Virginia to help out on a clemency case. Before then, her introduction to criminal justice was like many of
3: us. We would watch 48 hours every Saturday night. And Aaron Moriarty covered Ryan Ferguson's case. She did a number of episodes on his case, and it was unbelievable to me. I just didn't comp- couldn't comprehend how that could happen to somebody. And then she did an episode about Marty Tankliffe's case. And, you know, the the idea of some of these different things that cause a wrongful conviction, you know, feeding Charles Erickson information in Ryan's case to get him to give this, this, you know, really push for a false confession kind of thing. Like, it made no sense to me because I was sort of raised that the police are supposed to help us. I thought this is about what people actually did, what you could prove that they did, you know? And it's just not, so. You know, Ralph's case is a great kind of example of that. You know, I mean, there's no evidence. The things that were used against him at trial was, you know, really Roger King's imagination.
0: Lisa started working on Ralph's case in 2019.
3: And I'd seen Ralph's name for a while. And I thought, man, I want to look into that because he had been in for 37 years, I think, at the time. And I thought... You know, that's a big number. That was like a Ronnie Long number for me that kind of makes you want to look a little closer. You know, when I first started looking at this case, a friend had sent me some stuff about it. And when you initially look at it, I was like, these people have lost their minds. Like there's all these witnesses. You know what I mean? Like everybody says that he was there. Everybody says that. But then when you start looking a little bit deeper and you kind of scratch the surface and then you start to kind of deconstruct and you look at some of the players that were involved, like Roger King, like some of these police officers, you begin to see how this could all be orchestrated. And so I did some more research and I got some of the documents, the case file stuff, um, and I read through it and I was blown away by like like not really any evidence connecting him to this. And she's right.
0: Really, the only piece of physical evidence against Ralph was a pair of sneakers. In a search of Ralph's home, the police seized what they thought appeared to be bloody sneakers soaking in a bucket.
3: There was a pair of tennis shoes um, soaking in water. Uh, Ralph says that they were dirty, whatever. They, They were soaking to clean them off in the bathroom. They took this. They said that there was a mixture of blood and barbecue sauce that was found in the water that the shoes were um, soaking in.
0: The shoes were actually Ralph's brother's shoes, which he testified to at trial and says they were a few sizes smaller than Ralph's. But they were presented to the jury by King as matching blood and barbecue sauce from the crime scene. And that was pretty much it other than witness testimony placing Ralph and Jackson together that day. But we'll get to that later. In terms of Ralph's defense, his original public defender dropped out with three months left until trial. That left his new lawyer very little time to prepare for a capital murder case. And reading the trial transcripts, I am honestly surprised at how many mistakes the defense made with names and facts that needed to be corrected by the judge. It was really not a good look. And I'll be honest, with the sloppy defense, the testimony placing Ralph with Jackson, and the shoes allegedly matching crime scene evidence, I would also be fairly convinced of Ralph's guilt. Especially if I was told by King, someone who at the time had a sterling reputation, someone the jury was no doubt looking to as someone they could trust for facts and evidence.
3: He was a master for storyteller, but it was all fiction. It was all made up. And, and, and that's, that's a shame, you know, because a lot of people's lives were stolen by the things that he did.
0: On July 22nd, 1983, after only 45 minutes of deliberation, 19-year-old Ralph was found guilty of three counts of murder. During the sentencing, Ralph became agitated. He was tired of King provoking him. And if you read the court transcripts, there is a lot of this. This was something King was known to do. And Ralph lashed out and threw a chair at King. The court even told King that it was kind of his fault. He was being childish.
1: I actually picked up I picked up the chair and threw it. At, and the jury seen it. So he got out of me what he wanted to get out of me.
0: Almost immediately after Ralph was sentenced to death in the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, for his part, Donald Jackson's life was spared thanks to his plea deal and cooperation. He got life in prison. What was it like at nineteen, or you might have been twenty then, um, to be sentenced to die? What what it what was that like?
2: it in, in the words because uh, it, it was just like a nightmare that came, you know, like, it just can't, it just can't be true. Um, uh, it, it's really, it's just hard to put in the words what, what, how, you know, how you felt, uh. Really, I didn't even, you know, you would you didn't even want to dwell on it. You didn't even want to think about it, but it, it drove you crazy.
0: While in prison, Ralph has lost more than I can comprehend, including all of his siblings except one brother.
1: All the hardest things to deal with in here, they're calling you, and it's a death in your family here, what they do, if a family member passes away, they come get you and take you to uh, a, the charges office the chaplain and come down and tell you that the bars, even if they know, they don't say nothing. They don't say nothing. They come get you. After years of taking this walk, you kind of, you kind of already know someone passed away in their life. So, it's, it's, wrong. you know, it's just like a, it's like you fall in, but you, you know, it's like almost like an out of body experience, uh, trying to brace yourself. So, I mean, it's, i so just on uh, And here, you never really have a place to where you can't grieve about stuff like that. Really, no one else cares about your problems because everybody else got problems. So, um, you know, you got to internally deal with that stuff itself the best way you can. and uh, You really, it's sad to say you really can't hold on to it long. You got to, you got to like pack it away and uh, deal with it, uh, you know, whenever you can. Sometimes it don't pop up to years later.
0: Ralph says the hardest death to deal with was his father's.
1: Even to this day, whenever I talk about it, it had, it had me choked up.
0: Ralph's father had liver cancer. They talked one night on the phone, and Ralph thought he was doing better.
1: You know, at the end of the uh, conversation, I uh, told him, I said, All right, I'll call you even tomorrow or the next day. Uh, so when our time was up, um, I never talked to him again. I called two days later and tried to catch him. Uh, his phone kept going to... Um, that answering service thing. So you know, I kept hold. over the next couple of days, I kept calling. Couldn't get through to them and just, just nagging the feeling. You know, like someone just standing behind you. You know they did. You, you just don't want to turn around and acknowledge. That's how this feeling was. But this was serious. Something was wrong. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to think about it. You know, a week went by, and uh, then someone, uh, they came and called me and told me that night he went into uh, ICU, and he never gained consciousness. I think a few days later, he passed away. I found out later on, I was the last person that talked to him.
0: Hey, everyone, I just wanted to let you know that we are wrapping up season one of Unjust and Unsolved in February, and we have some amazing and exciting things planned for season two, but we will have a season break between one and two. And so if you want more content in that time, we will be adding a ton to our Patreon. I'm going to upload all episodes ad free and continue doing interviews and episodes but exclusively on Patreon. So if you want more Unjust and Unsolved during the break, or if you just want to help support and keep the show going, head on over to Patreon and become a subscriber. Thank you so, so, so much for supporting Unjust and Unsolved by becoming a Patreon, showing me that you care about the work that I'm doing and you want to keep it going. In 2004, after 22 years on death row, Ralph Finally, got a break. His attorneys were able to get access to exculpatory evidence King had previously withheld from the defense, and it was a bombshell. An FBI crime lab report from before trial says that the testing done on the shoes and other alleged evidence collected from Ralph's home state unequivocally that testing had found no lead residue, blood, or barbecue sauce on any of the items. Roger King knew this and presented the shoes as a match to the scene. This was the only physical evidence allegedly linking Ralph to the crime, and now that was completely shattered. Without the bogus shoe evidence, the case against Ralph is all eyewitness testimony. Like many of King's cases, which relied on coerced witness confessions, and I'll say most of the witnesses against Ralph were questionable at the least. The problem is nearly all the witnesses against Ralph who were not law enforcement had connections with each other or had something to gain. For example, the state's other star witness, Eric Burley, placed Ralph and Jackson together the day of the murder. He said they came to his house where he helped them dispose of the gun. Although this was months after the murder, when the police finally found Burley and picked him up. Burley actually went on the run with Jackson before Jackson's arrest. And Burley and Jackson were also known to commit crimes together
3: eric burley's mother gave a statement to police talking about how close they were i believe they'd also rob, uh, stolen a vehicle together at one point in time um but but they were much uh you know they were much closer than i think anyone uh really knew or, or what was presented to the jury
0: burley's statement also changed between his first and second police interview His first interview mentioned very few details and did not mention Ralph. Right before trial, he gave a second interview where he mentioned Ralph's name and gave details about what happened. This was also right before he was to be sentenced by the same district attorney's office for a separate crime, aggravated assault in which he shot at someone four times, hitting him in the kneecap with a similar gun to the Smoke and Joe's murders. None of this was presented to the jury or the defense. Burley was also, interestingly, never charged for any of his parts in allegedly disposing of the gun, evidence in a crime. It makes one wonder, did he take a deal for his testimony? But even without knowing any of this, the defense connected some dots. In the closing statement, they allege that Jackson was the shooter and Burley was actually the accomplice. It was pointed out that Jackson fits the description of the shooter, described as 5'7 to 5'9 much better than 5'11 Ralph. Jackson is 5'4. The other witnesses also have something to gain. A cook at Smokin' Joe's was actually a potential suspect. He told police he saw Ralph a month before the murder and said Ralph asked him if he wanted to be part of the robbery. Another person was arrested for a robbery and said he had info on the and Joe's job, and he too pointed at Ralph. Burley's brother got $2,000 in reward money for giving up Ralph as the shooter. And the other two people I just mentioned were listed on the reward money application. The only witness who seems to be independent of all of this is a barber. The barber said Ralph and Jackson were in his shop around 5 p.m. the day of the murders. He says he knew Jackson since he was a kid, but it's unclear from the transcript if he knew Ralph or if he picked him out of a lineup. I would assume if he picked him out of a lineup that would have been presented at trial. Even one of the two survivors has a questionable ID of Ralph. His statement changed multiple times. In his first interview, he did not say he recognized the shooter. He could just see the man was black through the eye holes of the ski mask. He also said he did not recognize his voice, just that Mary thought she did. By his second interview, a few days later, after Ralph was arrested, the survivor said he recognized the shooter's eyes as Trent's. And knowing what I know about Roger King, I do find this very suspicious. And then there is the final bombshell withheld from the defense. A witness said he saw Jackson the day of the murders.
3: Eric Burrell gave a statement to police in which he says that he saw three males together. Donald Jackson was one of them, along with two others. And that he said all three of them had committed the robbery and then murders. He
0: says he knew Jackson, but didn't recognize the other two guys. But they were all bragging about the murders. Burrell said that he would recognize them if he saw them. To me, if he had recognized Ralph, he could have identified him on the stand. But instead, he was never called to the stand at all. The prosecution left him off the witness list and withheld his existence from the defense.
3: None of this information was ever turned over to Ralph Stokes or his attorneys or anyone, which obviously would have, you know, shown what Roger King and the police were trying to say at trial, you know, wasn't accurate or it wasn't the entire story. This is
0: exculpatory evidence for Ralph. It also matches what some of the original police dispatch logs say about three suspects, which contradicts what Jackson said at trial. And this could have completely changed the outcome. But King kept it from the defense.
3: To me, he's worse than the person that actually committed this crime. He was in a position of power. He should have cared about the victims. He should have cared about finding out what actually happened to them. Should have, you know, the pain that these victims feel because they believe Ralph did it and that this has been carried on for 38 years after their loved one has died is a shame. You know, and I don't blame them for being angry. Problem is, is that they were lied to. It's all this this ripple effect of pain, you know, and, and dysfunction that goes on in these cases for a long time.
0: One of the people who knows this best is Jimmy Dennis. All right, can you hear me? Yes. Can you oh. hear me good? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, do you want to introduce yourself to listeners? Who you are?
4: Yeah. Oh. Okay. My name is James A. Dennis. I spent 25.5 years on death row for a crime I didn't commit.
0: Jimmy Dennis was prosecuted and sentenced to death by King in 1991 for the murder of a 17-year-old girl in Philadelphia. While in death row, Jimmy met Ralph Stokes. So I met
4: Ralph Stokes in 1993, found someone who was kind, caring, and a real gentle soul. And he was given um very given person and um this is somebody who uh on death row um looked out uh for me um i often refer to him as a big brother
0: ralph and jimmy met long before king's reputation came into question and both were surprised when they were comparing what happened to them
4: we were shocked to find out that we both had the same prosecutor and then We would uh, talk to each other about the um, corruption um, and the wrongdoing of Roger King and the police officers
0: When Larry Krasner, a former defense lawyer, took over as Philadelphia's top prosecutor in 2018, he promised to clean house.
1: District Attorney Larry Krasner made it a priority to investigate problematic convictions when he took office last year. In just 19 months, nine people, some serving life sentences, have been exonerated. He also fired 31 people to clean up the DA's office. Roger King,
0: as one of the office's most aggressive attorneys, was a big part of this problem.
4: He was not a uh, decent uh, human being because he literally destroyed my life. He has destroyed Ralph Stokes' life. And he destroyed numerous of other men uh, and women. Um, And this is welcoming in the city of Philadelphia. Just a little studying, you'll see um, the lives that he destroyed with lies and corruption.
0: Some of those folks include William Nieves, Frederick Thomas, Chester Holman, Jermel Lewis, Sakan Yuke, Hezekiah Thomas, and Chianti Perrin. On August 23, 2016, Jimmy was granted a new trial after evidence King withheld from the defense, quote, effectively gutted the prosecution's case against him. Roger King died the very next day. Today, Jimmy is an activist for The Wrongfully Convicted, and he's also an R&B singer and songwriter.
4: My dream was stolen away from me some years ago, and now um, one of the things that I believe is that no matter who you are in life, you should chase your dreams with reckless abandonment. I cannot get back 25.5 years where I lost my dad, where I lost that time with my daughters. Well, I lost my music career, and now I go to therapy every single day because I suffer from PTSD, panic, and anxiety attacks. Imagine what Ralph Stokes is still suffering from while he's there. He just wants to come home and go fishing. He just wants Mm -hmm. to come home and uh, be a part of his family. He just wants to come home and have a semblance of the life he has left um, to live.
0: Now, at 58 years old, the next steps for Ralph are urgent, Lisa says.
3: It's been 38 years. That's almost my entire life. I don't want to take five more years for this. I don't think that's right. It's not fair.
0: But Lisa also thinks time could have an advantage.
3: These things follow people around. You know, you've got to be pretty tortured by doing this to someone.
0: Perhaps after all this time, Someone will talk. Ralph is also in a good position with the current district attorney of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, who I mentioned a little earlier. Krasner was a former civil rights attorney who sued the Philadelphia Police Department 75 times. He came in promising sweeping civil rights and criminal justice reforms campaigning against mass incarceration and the, quote, failed culture of the Philadelphia DA's office.
1: Well, Philadelphia's top prosecutor is considered a national role model for criminal justice reform. Ralph says that Krasner
0: recently told his public defenders that they could come in and look at the entire file he has. And Ralph thinks this will be huge. He says there could be a ton of information that his team has never seen. But COVID put a hold on that. In the meantime, Ralph, Jimmy, and Lisa are all working on getting Ralph attorneys, who have more time and resources than the current federal public defenders, who the team says are impossible to contact and do not share information. Ralph had done more time than Jimmy, and both had petitions in at the same time. But as we know about lawyers, Jimmy's, who were private, were able to get him out faster. So. They really want to find Ralph, a lawyer who works with a PI, to get to the bottom of what really happened at Smoke and Joe's.
3: I think giving it a fresh set of eyes with some some really competent people uh, that care about these kinds of cases could make a big difference.
0: When you get out of prison, I mean, you you're you're almost sixty. Um, you're definitely. <laughs> You're not old, but you're not young. I mean, yeah, I would, I would like to, I would like to, would like to get married, and
2: start a family. Um, I could find a good paying job somewhere. Uh, I could pay my own way.
0: Ralph says it's those kinds of simple things he just wants to get back to.
2: If I could have my way, I would. I'd don't want to go back and feeling
0: too much violence at all. Ralph says he's thinking maybe Anchorage, Alaska, where he has some family, and really, he just wants to travel.
1: One place I would like, to, I, one thing I like to do, I like to uh, climb uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. I like to uh, go to the top of that. There's a, there's a wildlife uh, conservation uh, place in Kenya. I, don't know what type of, I, like to, I like to visit there. Uh, I like to see uh, certain things in the wild, like a while, like a, um, a pod of killer whales. I like to visit Australia. I like to visit uh, Antarctica. I, I definitely like to visit that.
0: Rolf's case has been in front of federal court judge Patrice Tucker since 2012, waiting for a ruling. I wrote to Larry Krasner's office, but have not heard back. Ralph desperately needs representation. If you were compelled by his story, there is a fundraiser that Lisa set up for a new defense team. If you have the means, please, please donate. Any amount of money helps and contacts are on our website. You can also find Jimmy Dennis's info and music on our website as well. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at unjustunsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at unjust and unsolved podcast discussion group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com.